0: This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin.
1: This is Meg Gardner. I'm Alifair Burke.
2: This is Lawrence Block.
0: This is Rachel
2: Housel-Hall.
3: Really good question. Oh, that's
2: an interesting question.
0: That's such an interesting question. This is Jennifer Hillier, and you're listening
2: to my favorite podcast, Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I'm your host, Eric Bietner, and I'm flying solo today, so I'm going to get right to it. I've got some great interviews for you, and just so I didn't feel too alone, each one is a trio, actually. A little business before we get to the first guest. I wanted to let you know about some books that I've been reading, and I think maybe you should too, uh, in a segment I call, Hey, Read This! I recently read Three-Fifths by John Vercher, Uh, and in in addition to being a title that I've just realized is very hard to say without sounding drunk on a podcast, uh, it was a really great read. I immediately reached out and contacted John to book him on the show, so I'll actually be talking with him in December, so that's plenty of time for you to go out and grab this book and read it and then uh, listen in to what he's got to say. The latest Ken Bruin novel, Galway Girl, is another winner in his Jack Taylor series, and that makes the 12th Jack Taylor book I've read this year, (laughs) and yikes, that is a lot of Irish noir, but I have absolutely loved it. Uh, Ken is just one of my favorite authors, hands down, and now I'm fully caught up on the Jack Taylor series, so I'm feeling very accomplished with myself in 2019. And I finally read an older book, uh, Brotherly Love by Pete Dexter from 1991, and holy hell, I loved this book. You know, I had known Dexter's name from books like Paris Trout, uh, The Paperboy, and God's Pocket, but I never actually read his stuff, and this book guarantees that I will be reading more of him and doing it very soon. I absolutely loved Brotherly Love. All right, so one more thing before we start. I have a little fact check to do here. When we had Lee Child as a guest on the show last year, he had already begun writing Blue Moon, the latest Jack Reacher novel, which is just out now and is number one on the bestseller list. And he claimed that he never changes the first line of the book. Give it a listen here. I don't know what it is, a superstition for me. I never, ever, ever change the first line of the first paragraph. Can you tease what the first line of the next book's <laughs> going to be for it? An exclusive here? The first line is, the city looked small on a map of
0: America. It was just a tiny, polite dot next to
2: a red threadlight road that ran across an otherwise empty inch of paper. So I was curious if that line really did stick, so I went and had a look, and he's right. (laughs) There there were two words that were slightly different. In the book, it's a half inch instead of an inch, and and it was near a road instead of next to. But I'm going to give him credit for that one since he was reciting that line from memory, which he had written a couple weeks before. He was not reading it in front of him. So you get credit for that, Lee Child. So uh, there you go. The superstition holds true. I I am impressed. All right, well, my first guest is a return guest for writer types. Nikki French is the pen name of the husband and wife writing duo of Nikki Garrard and Sean French. Their latest novel is a standalone called The Lying Room, which I praised on the show a few episodes ago and is already firmly on my favorites of the year list. It's always a real pleasure to talk to these two. Nikki and Sean, welcome back to Writer Types. This is your second appearance, and uh, couldn't be more thrilled to be speaking with you again.
4: Oh, we're thrilled. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's lovely to be back.
2: Now, uh, the only thing that's different from last time is that Steve has gone and, and left the show, so I'm sorry you get only me. And uh, in order to get over my uh, loneliness and missing of Steve, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the show asking you guys the sh- question I always ask Steve at the top of every episode – have you guys read anything good
4: lately? Oh, oh okay. So well, I'm going to dive in before Sean mentions this because actually I'm going to mention a book that we read together out loud with our youngest daughter. I mean, she's she's in her 20s, but we sometimes read to each other. Wow. And it's not a thriller. It's not even a novel. It's a book by Svetlana Alexeyevich, who's a journalist. And in fact, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature a few years back. This magnificent Book, which is like a collage of women's voices. She's interviewed women in Russia who fought in the war, and whose kind of histories were never really recorded, and she's captured them. And it's called the Unwomanly Face of War, and it is completely, wow. completely beautiful and heartbreaking and dramatic and wonderful. And I, I only remember the
0: title. Was not Lou Burney thriller? Terrific, something.
4: Something, road. Something November. road, November
0: Road by Lou Burney. Do you know that? Oh yes. Well, you may well, you probably all know that it's a terrific thriller. You can almost picture the film being made of it as you read it. <laughs>
4: oh, can I throw in a thriller as well? Which is the, yeah, which is a series. I've read the first two in what's going to be a series by Will Dean. There's a journalist called Tuva, and it's set in the part of Sweden that we go to every summer and every winter. Oh, um, nice. And it's very atmospheric and creepy and gothic, and it's almost destroyed Sweden for me. I'll never, I'll never look at Outlander <laughs> in the same way again. But it's it's terribly good.
2: All right. Well, you guys sound uh, like you've been busy re- with some great books. That's excellent. Now, uh, you ha- you both spent a career answering questions about you know how do you make your relationship work while you're writing novels, and and, and I'm sure you, you might be at the verge of getting tired of that if if not already. But mm-hmm. now, with your new book, The Lying Room, you've gone and wrote a book about infidelity and lying to your spouse.
4: That <laughs> <So>, is <laughs> that, because right. actually, we it, it kind of only really occurred to us about halfway through writing The Lying Room. One of the things that the novel is, apart from being what we hope is a kind of, you know, get you by your throat and heart thriller, it's a portrait of a marriage it's a portrait of a long marriage and two people who've kind of known each other for many many years and been and had children together it's not it's, and it's not entirely an advertisement for a long marriage, so no, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, no but of
0: course one, because one of the I suppose one of the things that Nicky and I have always been you know things that scares us is the kind of is the anxieties of ordinary life and how fragile an ordinary family can be. And that's, I think, one of the things that we often we don't like to face up to. It's it's not just that we're frightened of, of, of intruders from outside. It's how little we know about even the people we're really intimate with. You know, we all mm. have secrets from each other. Even, you know, even people like Nikki and me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I absolutely adored this book in, in a way that I almost didn't expect because I, I'm a huge fan of your uh, straight-ahead American-style noir novels, and this book, I think, fits so many of what I define as as a noir story, and yet it had something that I can really only describe as a very British feel to it. (laughs) I mean... Do, do, you, do you think it's fair to say that there's a, a slightly different style of noir story in the UK versus the US?
0: Well, can I say, for a start, I'm really glad that you say about noir, because we were interested in this classic noir structure, which, as, you know, obviously, every, you know, sure, all your listeners are aware that one of the classic things of a noir is an ordinary person makes a bad decision. Exactly. At the beginning, and they make the wrong choice, and it just, they can never go back. And it sets off a chain of events. That, you know, becomes more and more, you know, out of control. But
4: well, yeah, well, so we envisaged this as this kind of cascade of kind of mini or not so many crises and forks in the road. Maybe you endless... should say what the choice is. Maybe I should say what the choice is. Yes, before saying what... so, we have Neve, who's a middle-aged woman. She's a wife, a long-term wife. She's a mother of three children. And her daughter, in particular, is very troubled. She's an employee. She's a good employee. She's a good friend. She's a woman who juggles many things. And she's kind of made a life for her, which she mostly loves. But which in some ways, kind of, she's burdened by as well. Anyway, we see her on a typical weekday morning, kind of trying to kind of get the children's packed lunches together, clear up the kitchen, make them eat breakfast, send post them out of the door to school. And then when they've left gets on her bike and cycles from her house in East London into the centre of London, opens the door of a flat. We realise she's got an assignation to go and see her lover. She walks in, and this being a Nicky French novel, her lover is lying, murdered on the floor. And then she faces a decision. Should she do what she should clearly do, which is to call the police, <laughs> or when she when she thinks of doing that, she thinks that will upend my entire life. My secret life will be exposed. My family will be put at risk. Everything I've worked so hard for will be endangered. And it was that particular moment of her looking at a body on the floor and not calling the police that made us want to write the lying room. And we and it, your, that question you have about it with the British noir—that's absolutely spot on because we thought of her. At endlessly making kind of decisions, often bad decisions, facing those choices and being both a criminal and a detective of her own life. Right. At the same time, we thought if I was juggling things like kind of friends kind of coming around and not leaving and cooking meals and feeding the guinea pig and all the things that kind of women do all over the world, kind of trying to kind of hold all these compartments of her life together.
2: Well, yeah, it, it, there's a scene in this book that I, I have to say is probably the most tense dinner party scene, maybe I've <laughs> ever read. But it's because it's both uh, Neve worried about her secret maybe tumbling out. But there's also this sort of undercurrent of, well, she's also trying to keep together a dinner party with friends because it would be terrible if the dinner party went poorly and she would be embarrassed in front of all of her coworkers and friends. So, I mean, I, and I think that speaks to the, the sort of Britishness that, that yeah. I felt, which is, you know, it's it's not a very American, uh, you know, kind of down in the gutter sort of thing. But like you say, it's it's this wonderfully domestic story that i think uh, it became very relatable to to me in in that way like you say it's just she keeps digging a hole deeper for us <laughs> i mean
0: you know I mean, it's, it's lovely of you to say that's so much what we were going for and we really wanted uh, to, to create as we something that was had all the ingredients of a thriller and we really wanted to build up we, we, we i mean it's basically written in this almost as Consciously, there are only eight chapters in the book, and each one ends. It's a kind of series of cliffhangers, you know, as it kind of things get go from bad to worse all the way through. And yet, we wanted it always to be in the world that we live in. That just, you know, you're worried about feeding the children, and yeah, and making and dealing with friends, and w- wondering whether they're when they're going to leave, and you know, making sure that the pet is fed. You know, all those all the details of everyday life, but making them making them scary.
2: Now, were you? You say that you're you were influenced by if any uh, American style noir stories or are is there more of a tradition of this kind of story in in the UK than most American readers are aware of?
0: Well, that's really that's such an interesting question. I mean, I, I think there is a real tradition actually in a, in a, in America of these. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to think of the names of them. I mean, classic example of Double Indemnity, which is just right. about selling insurance. You know, you sell insurance to a woman. And it all goes wrong. Well, what's the, <laughs> well, the is it? What's she called? Elizabeth saxe Holding. Who did this great book that was that made that called wall, the, the Blank Wall, which is also just about a completely ordinary woman who gets involved. I think with the with someone connected with her daughter. I suppose what we've done in this is it's saturated exactly as you said. It's in this is what London. It's like London of 2019. You know, this is what it's like a certain kind of middle class, slightly struggling life of middle aged people trying to get by. I mean, right. actually, you know, in a way, you you raising this question is making me making us almost think about it in a way. We didn't know <laughs> what we were writing.
4: <laughs> <laughs> in a way, if
0: you think, I mean, we're, Nicky and I, we're, we're, I mean, we're real film watchers and we love them. The, the, these noir films that were made in the in the 40s. And there was something about the reason that, you know, I think the reason it happened then was because something, because of what people had gone through in the war, somehow illusions had been stripped away, away. And people suddenly thought, you know, when they came back from the war, they thought these families. suddenly realised how vulnerable they were, and how often, how you know, how fragile, how easy it was for them to go wrong. And maybe, you know, we're not in here in Britain, you know, in the middle of all our Brexit troubles. I think maybe, maybe there's, you know, there's just a feeling of vulnerability. Suddenly, we're not the safe country we thought we were. So, you and, know.
4: yeah, lives seem suddenly precarious, and relationships seem precarious in a way perhaps that they didn't before.
2: Well, it, it's interesting that you, you mentioned the political turmoil. I mean, I, we're going through a, a, a bit of an upheaval here in we, the states. We one of
0: we... things about that, yeah, <laughs>
2: even over here. <laughs> yeah, but it, do you think that that kind of uh, outside cultural influence? I mean, it has to end up influencing the books, the films that will come out for the next couple years. Oh, uh, and
4: you... more than a couple of years. I mean, it absolutely has to influence tipping over my tea It's absolutely has influenced me I don't think that that influence happens directly There, we would never set out to think we are going to write a Brexit novel but somehow right. that thing about so in In the UK, as in the US, I think, there's a sense that people feel betrayed by each other. Everyone is in a... and people feel offended by each other and people people feel misunderstood and angry. Mm. And that absolutely, not just with this novel, but with novels that we've written before, has come into the way that we're writing. That sense of how do you live a good life amid the kind of turbulent times that we're going through.
2: Now, when you guys recently ended your long-running Frida Klein series, did it suddenly energize you to jump into a a new type of story like this?
4: That's so interesting, because actually, I think the answer to that is yes, we, we felt really kind of bereaved, if you like, almost, when we said goodbye to Frieda. It was a kind of painful thing to let her go. On the other hand, it was incredibly kind of exhilarating, really, because we felt like we were beginning again. It's like the third age of Nicky French, if you like, going back to writing standalones. And one of the things that we found, right, I mean, we want, I mean, I think The Lying Room is scary and tense. But at the same time, we really had fun writing it. And there is a way in which The Lying Room is a bit like a very grim, scary farce. We wanted it to be like kind of, you know, almost doors opening and people falling through them. Kind of all the things that happen in a farce but then turned into, into a domestic noir.
2: Yeah, the, the bodies are dead falling through the door. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, and just, and just trying to, you know,
0: just trying, she's desperately sort of improvising lie after lie to try and hold her, you know, fabricated alibis together. I think there's a really thin line between different genres. I mean, we often talk about, Nikki and I, how rom coms are really similar to you know to, to psychological thrillers and it's often about you know some 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 boyfriend who just won't go away you know and it's, it's <laughs> charming but he it, sings you, underneath yeah. your
4: window yeah, and it's and
0: like it, a true yeah. You think? Well, think about the thing and say anything when John Cusack is holding up the beatbox outside the window. Well, if you if if it's John Cusack and he's being charming, that's
4: lovable, but it sounds very close to being
0: <laughs> terrifying stalking, you know. No, we
4: had, and we had this thing, so after Frida, we spent a decade living with Frida, kind of eight books of that series. And Frida was an extraordinary woman. She was way cleverer than us. Um and she was like an alpha female, if you like. She was not like anybody else. Whereas Neve, when we when we came back to writing standalones we really wanted to have a woman who is like us who's not necessarily cleverer than us who's you know who really doesn't want to be in this thriller and really isn't very good at being a detective um, and makes lots of mistakes and it was it was just it was a whole it, we felt like we'd entered a whole new chapter of our writing life when we came to neve.
2: Well, now we've talked about it before, how you guys do trading off of, of writing of, of scenes. And, and when you were writing this story about this uh, less than perfect marriage, w- was there ever a moment where one of you would write something maybe a little too well and you'd have to kind of explain yourself? How do you know that? Well. <laughs> Oh, this is well, a,
4: this, you're trying this, to make us this, kind of. like a. a divorce. like a
2: of couples
0: therapy we're about to do. <laughs> uh, well, do you know, I think we're the, the kinds. Uh, we, I think we're definitely playing with the kinds of things we, you go through in your marriage, where you know, where you're taking. We you may be taking each other for granted, you know. <laughs>
4: you see, it almost comes from this. I think what maybe Sean is struggling to say <laughs> is that it almost works the other way around, is that uh-huh, I think but, the lying room comes out of kind of in ongoing enduring conversations we have about how to stay married well how how to how not to take each other for granted how not to go stale on each other and those conversations because it's it's hard you know everyone who's married for a long for any length of time knows it's hard to be married well so it's more that it came from that so I'd have to say though that when I look
0: at something, well, the husbands—he's so Neve and her husband Fletcher—and he, Fletcher's quite an irritating character. When rereading the book, when I see Fletcher's most irritating characteristics, he, he reminds me of me a bit. Actually, <laughs> no, but that, <laughs> that, but that doesn't mean that Nikki wrote them. You know, I'm perfectly <laughs>
2: capable of writing about how uh, irritating. To finish up, I, I am looking to see if I can get any advice from you guys. On the chance that I happen to write a book in the future about a bad marriage or about infidelity, what should I say to my wife of nearly 20 years if I write something like this and she happens to read it? Any any advice for, for keeping a marriage solid after you've written something like this? you just say oh it's all made up, it's all made up. But, I
0: mean, I mean we've, in a way we've been through this not just in our, with our marriage but we've certainly made use of our children so our children have had to have
2: just had to suck it up actually
4: <laughs> Look, are you t- are you saying that he should tell his wife to suck it up like, that would not be a good idea
2: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is why my wife does not read my books actually <laughs> <laughs>
4: Does your wife not read your books?
2: She does not anymore. She, I think, she read uh, she read I think one and a half out of twenty two, yeah. and and she was like, "Yeah, no, that's good. I, I I don't really want to know what's going on in your head as you lay next to me."
4: Oh, so that is because I think it is an unnerving thing seeing into their imagination.
2: Well, that's
0: a very good way of putting it. I think Nikki and I have kind of lived in each other's head for you know for twenty five years, and that can be quite an uncomfortable <laughs> thing to do.
2: Well, as long as the result is a book as good is as The Lying Room, then uh, I suggest you keep doing it.
4: Well, that's well, kind of you, right? Very Thanks nice. So it's been so nice talking to you.
2: I absolutely love that she tipped over a cup of tea in the middle of that interview. <laughs> and I, I had to leave that in. They, like their book, are so very British. All right. Well, next on our UnPanel, we go from the British Isles to the island of Puerto Rico, Angel Luis Cologne, another former guest of the show and someone I call a friend, has created and edited a new anthology to benefit the people of Puerto Rico, as well as highlight some new and established Latinx writers. And Angel is here with some of those writers to
5: tell you all about the book. Hey, Angel Luis Colon here. Uh, big thanks to Writer Types for having me on to talk about my anthology. And it's not my writing. I just edited it. It's uh, a Que Sepas. This is a uh, from the Latinx crime community uh, to benefit the people of Puerto Rico. I really hope you uh, enjoy hearing some of our writers explain why they wrote their stories and a little background on that. But it, this is a collection of Latinx fiction that is unapologetically Latinx and it's for a good cause it has been two years since hurricane maria utterly ravaged the island of puerto rico but if you've been following the news uh the hurricane has left more than a lasting mark on the people over there and we need to remember that at the end of the day uh they're americans too they're uh people of my blood and they, they deserve our support no matter what so please check out what uh, what my fellow writers uh have to tell you they're brilliant folks telling you right now if you want to get your socks knocked off with some fantastic fiction please check out Pa Que lo Sepas. It is something I, I, I think I might be <laughs> more proud of than anything I've ever done so uh, I'll take it as a personal offense if you don't pick it up but hey if you do you're all right.
3: Hi this is Carmen Jaramillo and I wrote Me Encanta Tu Nombre for Pa Que lo Sepas. My story is an exploration, from one perspective, of the difference between how one might feel as a Latinx person from the United States, and how that same person might feel when they, as an estadounidense, are in the Latin American country their family came from. I wrote a character who is in such a position that his heritage is most often a privilege and comes easily as a mark of pride. I wanted to use this character to explore the feeling of becoming aware of the biases that come from that worldview and that experience and then feeling like a fraud as those get more obvious. And although the perspective does reflect my own upbringing in a place of racial and class privilege and from being white Latinx, I'm hoping the story still has more general resonance, both in terms of confronting our own biases and blind spots, as well as the uncomfortable feeling of realizing that your conception of yourself might be very different from everyone else's idea of yourself.
5: Hey, this is Alex Segura. I'm the writer of the Anthony Award-nominated Pete Fernandez Miami Mysteries. Uh, I have a short story in Paquetulo Sepas. The proceeds will go to Benefit Puerto Rico, which, as we all know, has been ravaged by hurricanes and mismanagement and lots of other tragic stuff. My story is called The Red Zone, and uh, it's a fun little bit of football noir set in, uh, I guess, the further reaches of college football, not not the... uh, high-octane Division One NCAA stuff. And it's, it's about a Hispanic QB who doesn't have many expectations of success but gets corralled into becoming a key player on the team. And he faces a lot of unexpected backlash that he probably wouldn't face if he were your typical kind of blonde, blue-eyed, um, all-American star. So hope you check it out. Thanks. Hi, it's Sina
3: Palayo, I wrote Boricua Obituary for Paque Tu Lo Sepas. My short story is a genre blend, a mystery and horror story blend, and it deals with ideas of family suffering and family guilt. And I wanted to explore this idea of wanting to return back to where you came from, which is an experience that many Puerto Ricans that came to the mainland in the 1950s and 1960s wanted. They came Intending to always return to their island home, but as many people establish roots, they weren't able to so I talk about that struggle of wanting to return back and aging and What does it mean to protect the ones that you love? (laughs)
2: Well, two new releases you should have on your radar are Maxine Unleashes Doomsday by Nick Kolakowski and The Unknowing by Trey Barker. These are two very different books by two very talented guys, and I knew I wanted to talk with them both. So, you know, why not do it together? So first things first, uh, Nick Kolakowski, Trey Barker, thanks for being on the show. Do you guys know each other? We do not, unfortunately. I'm glad that we're having this meeting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think uh, a great many of the people at meeting conventions I don't remember because of Mr. Daniels' fault, um, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure <laughs> Nick and I have never met, no. No. Well, we all three uh, share a
2: publisher in Down and Out Books, so I'm glad to get to talk to you guys. Uh, yeah, and that's cool. both of you. Both of you have some new releases. Uh, Trey, I want to start with you. Uh, I want to talk about the Guns and Tacos (laughs) project, which uh, you very uh, kindly invited me into. So just give us the the rundown. What on earth do Guns and Tacos have to do with each other, and why did you think to put those two things together? Only one is delicious. (laughs) It's true.
1: Yeah, it's true. Um, Michael Bracken and I do Guns and Tacos, we created it. We were at dinner together last year and everybody has a slightly different version of how this happened. But at some point during the meal, we got to talking about tacos and at another point during the meal, we were talking about guns and somebody at that table uh, mentioned Guns and Tacos as a joke and within 24 hours, we had the whole thing put together. And uh, (laughs) Eric Campbell, (laughs) the first look on his face was like, Seriously, you guys are coming to me with this bullshit?
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, after we got him sufficiently liquored up, he said, sure, why not? You know. Um, and it's been great fun. The, the gimmick of it is that there's a, a taco truck, which I, I love food trucks, always have, always will, that if you ask for the daily special and you have the cash then and there, you'll get whatever the daily special is, chalupas, tacos, whatever, and whatever gun they happen to have handy. So it's just, it's been a fun... Fun, odd anthology to put together. Almost everybody I approached about it has been, you know, say, hey, you want to come play in this particular world? And everybody, to a person, has been like, uh, yes?
2: (laughs) And now you you mentioned you're you're on the second uh, round of these. How many are in in each season?
1: Uh, The first season is six total. And then the second season, I believe, is also six. But Michael and I do a short novel uh, together. So that's five other writers.
2: Now, Nick, let's talk about your new novel because it is uh, particularly crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it's future set and it follows. You know, it's a trend that I, I feel like I'm seeing a lot among our contemporary crime writers to maybe think bigger, to think a little bit cross genre. I mean, when you were first setting out on this book. It, Is it intentionally you're wanting to to stretch yourself? Were you sort of getting bored with writing straight crime stuff? I mean, what made this the next book for you?
6: So it's an idea that I actually been playing with for, gosh, probably around five years or so. But I, I grew up with an intense love of RoboCop and The Road Warrior and all of these sort of dystopian visions that combined sci-fi with noir with with all these other concepts and i'd wanted to do one for a really long time and maxine gave me the opportunity to do so because it's it's a it's a heist novel that takes place in new york probably around 2040 or so and basically this this girl maxine and her uncle preacher who is this infamous outlaw and thief and a couple of other assorted characters um plotting to 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 rob this armored car convoy. And then, you know, when when we write these this when we write crime fiction, when we write noir novels, one of the great fun elements of it is setting up, you know, what the protagonist thinks is gonna happen. But we all know that a plan is just a list of things that don't happen. Um, And I kind of wanted to take that to the extreme. Like not only does the heist not go off in the way that any of these characters intend, but What they accidentally unleash ends up killing billions of people and so on. And that becomes, you know, obviously a much larger problem that everybody has to deal with.
1: You write nothing like a low stakes novel.
6: Exactly.
2: Yeah. It's interesting because in both of these uh, projects that we've talked about already, there there's world building that goes on in very different scales. But I mean, mm-hmm. do you guys think, I mean, Trey, you know, you're, you're not building this post-apocalyptic world, but you, you, as you outlined, like you've set rules of the world that goes on in Guns and Tacos. And then in, in your other novels, obviously you're writing fictional people. So you have to build a little bit of, of a world, even though it exists in a world that we're all familiar with. Do you think that? It's still basically the same process at the end of the day?
1: Uh, I think it is because whatever the rules are for whatever the genre, they have to work internally. You know, I started off writing horror, and it, it doesn't matter how far afield you go in any particular world, the rules all have to work. So if Nick sets up rules A, B, C, and D, all the way through the book it's got a, the internal logic has to be there so i think the process is the same whether you're doing something very small stakes or you something doing something huge stakes like nick's new one
6: the audience will always stick with you as long as the internal rules are consistent you can get, get completely wild yeah. but as long as you have that internal consistency they'll buy it it's when you drift from it no matter what you're doing that they yep. you know you start getting irate amazon reviews and so on that's <laughs> exactly right been down that road before
1: yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when we talk about small stakes and I just want to say in, in my day job, I get these people who. Oh, we should
2: specify, Trey, that your day job is in law enforcement uh, dealing with bad guys. Uh, so go ahead.
1: You know, they call because they've had uh, uh, somebody trespassed on their land. And it's incredibly minor. It's incredibly small stakes, except to them, it's the biggest thing going on in the world at that moment.
6: It reminds me a little bit of, I think it's that Mel Brooks quote about how tragedy is when I cut my finger and comedy is when you walk into like an open manhole or something like that. (laughs) Like when it's happening to you, it's always, it's always massive and it's, it's, it's hard sometimes to step back and get
2: that context. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, now Trey, you also have a new full length novel, The Unknowing, and I mean, from the description, if it seems like this is at least a little bit different for you. It's it's a little bit, maybe a little bit less procedural, a little bit less based on uh, on your day job working in law enforcement.
1: You know, weirdly, it's actually more procedural oh. because it is, it's a, I don't want to describe it. The, the other novels, the Bearfield novels. <laughs> it, it's changed. your own book. You don't know how to describe yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. Welcome to my life. <laughs> um the, the Bearfield novels were just caper novels. The Jay Salome novels are absolutely straight up police procedural. Everything happens within that world, within the world of the Zachary County Sheriff's Office. This new novel also has a sheriff's office, but this guy's kind of right on the line. So in some ways it's more procedural, but you're right, in some ways it's a little less procedural because he goes a little further afield. And it is different, way different for me stylistically. Much more paced, much uh, more cerebral. Uh, I like to think of it as more James Burke than Jim Thompson.
2: So now it's we talked a little bit about you know tr- just mixing things up and uh, trying to break out of just your own potential for getting stale in your writing. Is that, is that where the motivation came from? to to switch things up
1: stylistically? This one just felt. The the character and the situation felt different stylistically. That's part of how I do things. Some ideas just come to me like the guns and tacos story in season one. That came to me almost fully formed. thousand miles an hour, no stops, lots of guns, off we go. The new novel mm-hmm. just didn't feel like that.
2: Yeah, and, and you have to stick to the voice that suits your particular story. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think that's a good quality for a writer to have is the ability to be a little bit malleable and not try to force the wrong story into a a voice. That's not it. I mean, I, I think for me, I know I definitely have started to outline stories and gotten to a certain point where I realized like, you know what, I'm just not the writer for this story. Like this would be a much better Megan Abbott book than, than it would be an Eric Bietner book. If you guys ever run across a story that you've sort of realized, Oh damn, I'm just not the guy. Yeah. I've always admired uh, locked
6: room murder mysteries, like kind of the old school Agatha Christie style. Yeah. Um, I actually started to write one the other day as more of a short story than a novel. I, and I got about 3,000 words in and realized that whatever outlining backslash research backslash kind of logistical process goes into creating even a relatively simple scenario is not a my mi- it's certainly a mindset that I could adapt to, but it's not a mindset that I naturally have, and it's sort of the this 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 train of thought has has sputtered at least temporarily to a stop, and I kind of have to step back and reevaluate my entire approach to mm-hmm. writing something along those lines because I've I've never done something like that before.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. For me, it doesn't manifest as saying, "Oh, I'm not the writer for this." It usually manifests by saying, "I'm not the writer for this right now." So Trey. You were
2: born and raised in Texas, but you've left, and it's, it's been a few years now, but would you yes. say that, that you've left Texas, but uh, is it safe to say Texas has never left you?
1: <laughs> uh, you know what? I am completely schizophrenic when it comes to Texas. Most of my writing is set there. In fact, the new novel, The Unknowing, is one of only two novels that are set somewhere other than Texas. I am completely, totally head over heels in love with Texas. And absolutely balls out disgusted with Texas, so that's <laughs> Texas is crazy. It's completely insane. I tend to be a, a left of center politically, so obviously in Texas I'm the odd man out. It's the mythos and the legend and the the individualism and the all that stuff. And there's the Gulf, and there's the desert, and there are trees, and there are rocks, and there are lefties, and there are righties, and there's football and baseball, and you know. Um, immigration problems and you know it just there's a little bit of everything there that I think doesn't exist everywhere and so that draws yeah. me even as some of the current issues repel me
2: <laughs> well and then on the same other side of the coin I guess Nick you're a New Yorker and yeah. is it safe to say that that New York probably you know, seeps into your bones mm-hmm. as much as any place on earth and and it would affect your storytelling no matter where you go right I th- I would say that's the
6: case. It's just New York is so frenetic and the energy of it is so over the top that even if you aren't drinking coffee, you're sort of perpetually over caffeinated. <laughs> um and there's just co- constant, you know, just sort of constant stimulation and, and it does seep into your writing in so far as you, you sort of have to I, I have to very consciously sometimes go back in my drafts and be like, okay, like you know you've rushed this one sentence and but if you break it out and slow the pace down and and make it into three paragraphs, then the audience is going to be better served even if your impulse is to to rush everything at a, at a hundred miles an hour and the other facet is, you see over you see and you overhear so much stuff on a daily basis because everybody is crammed together in apartment buildings and subway cars and so on, that you just pick up all these little bits of dialogue and all these this this weirdness that inevitably finds its way into the books. The nature of the city and everyone being crammed together, even if your books aren't set in New York, you sort of find the weirdness of what you've seen creeping into
2: whatever you're doing. Because it's interesting. Well, Trey, you deal with bad guys all day long, and <laughs> I, I once got an extra five dollars in change at a fast food joint, and I didn't say anything.
1: Wow, you're yeah. a wild man.
2: Yeah, how do I rate among the people that you see on a daily basis? You,
1: you know what? Compared to the people I see on a daily basis, you may actually be a mastermind <laughs> um, with your with your five dollars in change. Perfect example. Uh, a couple of years ago. A local dealer sold his brother some drugs. His brother died within a couple of days of ODing Mm. on those drugs. Now, you would think that would be some sort of a heads up about how awful it is to watch somebody you love die. Uh, No. If you took that lesson away from that incident, you'd be wrong. Because two years later, he thought it would be funny, funny to fake an OD in front of his girlfriend. What?
5: Oh, that's messed up.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and no, you weird. can't use it in a book. I've already got it planned for a book, so just use it. Right. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, fully <laughs> noted. All right. But that's the kind of bullshit I deal with on a daily basis. Our our regular clients, our return clients, our frequent flyers call us constantly, and it's this kind of just goofy bullshit. So-and-so said this about me on Facebook. So-and-so drove by the house and flipped me off. So-and-so. Someone I mean, calls the cops for that? Oh, dude. I can't even begin to tell you. So you can see, Eric, when, you, when you're slick enough to walk out with an extra five bucks and change, you're near the top of the food chain. All right. <laughs> I miss my calling. I'm a criminal mastermind. <laughs> yeah, at least at least in this area. You might not be in New York. They're a little more creative up there, I think.
6: I don't know. You see some, I mean, I, on a daily basis, I mean, you see some people who, who think that they're slick and they're going to get away
2: with something that's so completely idiotic. It's almost a thing of beauty. <laughs> when I lived in, in Manhattan, uh, my brief time there, I, I, the greatest crime I have ever seen committed in front of me happened. I was driving a van to go deliver a thing, because I was a production assistant and I had to go deliver a thing. So I I was stuck uh, way down in Greenwich Village, just in bumper to bumper traffic on some little side street. And I was parked right behind, it was like a giant Cadillac Eldorado, like this just huge land boat of a car at a complete dead stop. Double parked in the street was a, a beer truck delivery where the guy was inside the bar doing it, had left the roll doors wide open. Oh. And I, did you see a guy lean out of the passenger, didn't even get out of the car, just leaned <laughs> out the window <laughs> of the Cadillac, reached over and just started grabbing cases of beer, putting them into the back seat. I think he got four cases of beer before the light turned and then they were gone. <laughs> I was like, I just witnessed the perfect crop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Nick. La- last question here. Uh-huh. I-, I just want to kn- I want to know from you, knowing Trey's background in law enforcement mm-hmm. and his, his his skill with a gun, his experience facing down truly bad guys. Yeah. If all three of us were thrust into the world that you've created for, as Maxine unleashes Doomsday, yeah. which of the two of us would you want by your side? Trey, I'm sorry, Eric. I'm really
6: sorry. But it just, I mean, it's, it's, although Eric, I got to say, I mean, there's a lot of driving in Maxine. I mean, because it's, it's, it's the road warrior influence. There's a lot of that. And as an LA resident, I have to say, I mean, if you're spending 90 minutes a day in like intense LA traffic, I, I, yeah. maybe I hand it to you too. Maybe, I mean, you know, you put, put in the middle of a post apocalyptic highway where you got to steer around flaming cars and so on. I mean, that's just your daily commute.
2: Yeah, I, you know, there, there's a reason why uh, none of the Mad Max movies feature a Prius, though. Right. Oh,
6: yeah, no, that's true, too. Yeah, you got to get that pickup when you're being pursued by, like, you know, cannibal, zombie, whatever. It's from beyond hell.
2: Well, there you go. Another episode done. Hopefully you kept track of all the new books that uh, you're going to have to go out and buy after hearing about them. Now, starting next episode, I will be joined by a new special guest co-host every show, and I have some really great guests in store for you. Writer Types is produced and edited by me, Eric Beatner. If you like it, click on that subscribe button and maybe leave a review if you feel inspired. You can get updates and learn more about the featured authors on our Twitter page, at Writer Types. And hey, I write books too, which you can learn about over at EricBeatner.com. And I'll talk with you next time.